Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. By rocket to the moon, by airplane to the rocket, by taxi to the airport, by front door to the taxi, by throwing back the blanket hanging down the leg. <laughs> okay. So we want to start off this episode with something we haven't done in a while. And by that, I mean some listener mail. This listener mail comes from Megan, and Megan says, Hi guys, I love your podcasts. I rely on them as a form of continuing education as I work on my own research and writing projects that relate to technology. As the date approaches for the launch of the final space shuttle, I wondered if you would consider doing one, or a dozen, special episodes on space technology. One episode just on the space shuttle itself would be nice. How does it fly? What does it do? How does it deliver its payloads into space without losing its air pressure? And then I snipped a big part of her email because it relates to other possible topics we may talk about in the future. And then I go to thanks and keep up the good work, Megan. So yeah, I had to keep that last little bit in. Yeah, but it's good, you know, want to be inclusive. Yes. And Megan did uh, have several other suggestions, all of which are wonderful ones. And we will probably get to them in the future. But uh, we want to concentrate on the space shuttle right now. Yeah, talking about uh, trying to get us to talk about space technology is doesn't require a lot of arm twisting. So. No, no, we, you just have to say Jiminy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've already talked about some in the past, some of the older space tech, but um, yeah, I think there there uh, are several in the future. Let's just say that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I should also add that uh, we have a great article on HowStuffWorks.com about the space shuttle, and it's called "In Brace Yourselves." How the space shuttle works, and it's uh it's really really well done. It's a comprehensive, very long, very involved article. Lots of really great animations and illustrations in there. Uh, I do highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's I would call it one of our classic how stuff works articles. 
Yeah. Because it, it, it kind of pulls out all the stops. So we're going to kind of talk about uh, the space shuttle. And I thought we'd start with maybe sort of a brief overview of the history of the program. Okay, sure. So you got NASA. You know, they're, they've, they've had their successful, uh, launches of getting, uh, astronauts into orbit, uh, getting astronauts all the way to the moon and back safely. Right. They've made some phenomenal contributions to science. Uh, and around 1972, President Nixon announced that what he wanted to see, what, what the next step in the space program was going to be was to create a reusable space uh, a, a shuttle or space transportation system, STS, um, so that we could actually keep using the same vehicle over and over again. Because prior to that point, the vehicles we'd been using, the capsules we'd been using, were all one use. You used them one time, and that was all you could use them for. Well, you know, that that's one of the, the benefits. You know, they're disposable. You can pick one up anytime you're out on the road. Right, you're right. You just go to your Costco and, hey, you know, if I buy them in bulk. No, no, that's not how that worked at all. It was incredibly expensive to develop the, the capsules, and you could only use them one time. So yep. this was an idea of creating a, a space program that would use the same vehicle over and over. But uh, uh, there were some trade-offs that you had to make for that. Uh, one of those trade-offs was that, you couldn't necessarily create a vehicle that could go into high orbits or to travel to distant locations like the moon or Mars. You could only kind of launch into a low orbit. Um, uh, part of that was this idea of a space shuttle design that could return by gliding down to the Earth's surface as opposed to, you know, plummeting and then uh, uh, launching out a, a parachute and then kind of drifting down into the ocean for retrieval. So the design meant that they had to reconcile the fact that we would not be using this same sort of vehicle to go to places like the moon or Mars. Right, right. Uh, so this was a, a calculated decision on NASA's part to kind of change the focus of the space program. It was now no longer just – well, it was never just about uh, – being the first to the moon, but that was a big part of it, right? The space mm-hmm. race was, in part, a a competition. Yeah, that that's true. The uh, uh, USSR, Soviet Union, yes. was, uh, of course, and this won't be a surprise to probably anybody who listens to this podcast. But yeah, we we've talked about the space race before between um, the United States and the USSR, and and you know it escalated from the time of Sputnik. You know, mm-hmm. the, the ball that beeps. Yes. Um, up to the point where they decided they wanted to go to the moon and it was a competition to see who could go and, and set foot on the moon first. Um, and, you know, it, it went from, you know, who can orbit the moon or orbit the earth first and then, you know, who, who can, uh, have, you know, set foot on the moon. And then they, this, this presented greater challenges because the science involved, the idea of doing science in space, um, is very compelling yeah. because there are things that you can do in outer space that you can't do uh, in within the Earth's gravity. Like lots of flippies. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is the the also this, from what I understand, tang tastes best if you're in <laughs> if you're in a low Earth orbit. And yes, contrary to popular myth, tang was not created for the space program. It no. just happens to be very handy in this in this context. Right. But um, but yeah, I mean, this was this was. When we're talking about this as the early seventies, fresh on the heels of, uh, you know, the Apollo program. Yes. Um, so, so this yeah, is really the like, next step. Exactly. And so NASA then awarded the prime contract for the shuttle to Rockwell International. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Rockwell International had to come up with different ways of creating some reusable materials, uh, including things like the, the tiles that help absorb heat upon reentry. That was a big thing, right? You know, yeah. it wasn't just that, uh, that it needed to be able to fly to uh, the surface of the Earth safely, but it had to have something that would uh, absorb and redistribute heat in a way that would protect the people inside and could be used over and over again, as opposed to something that could only do it the one time. Right. If you if you go see one of the capsules from the earlier space missions in, say, the, the Smithsonian Institution, yeah. for example, and you actually look at the heat shield on the bottom of the uh, the capsule and how... <laughs> burned it looks from reentry. It it's it creates an impression because that's uh it's an awful lot of friction coming back home. Ooh, you said the word friction. I did. Yeah. Let's 
we'll we'll address that when we get into reentry. But before you guys write in about friction, just let I want to let you know I will address that. So, but you're gonna have to wait. Should we take that? out? No, no. We need to keep that in because okay. it's important. It's important. Okay. Because it's it's sort of shorthand, right? For yeah. talking about the heat that's generated, but it's a little more complicated than that. And don't worry, people. We will talk about it. We're just gonna talk about that when we talk about the shuttle re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. Yep. So, uh, the the first shuttle that was ever built, you know the you know the name of the very first shuttle ever built that was not designed to go into space. It was just the first one that was built to test the flying capability, right? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I have some history on each of the spacecraft involved. Yeah. Um, and I remember this because I actually have, I, I still have it, a lunchbox with this spa- particular spacecraft on it. What was the from name my, of this one? From my younger days. Um, and that would be the Enterprise. Yes. OV-101. Yes, this Which, is a, and, and you may wonder, is this in reference to the, the long-loved uh, science fiction series Star Trek. Yes, it is. <laughs> the inter- the shuttle Enterprise, which was not designed to go into space, it was only to test the the gliding and flying capabilities of the shuttle to uh, uh, to see make sure that the design actually worked. Um, that's all it did. So they launched it from a, a Boeing seven forty seven, mm-hmm. and it it successfully flew and landed safely at the uh, Edwards Air Force Base. Yes, and it actually rolled out. If you think about it, we were talking about the early 70s. They didn't waste any time. The Enterprise rolled out on September 17th, 1976. Yeah. So it was. It didn't take years and years and years to develop. I also want to say, as just as an aside, I know we've got a lot to cover, but it ended up being sort of a recursive thing yeah. uh, since the Enterprise space shuttle was mentioned in Star Trek as yes. being the first Enterprise. Yeah. So, so it's that I find that amusing. It's meta. So... Uh, uh, <laughs> There were other the the uh, actual shuttles that were used in space uh, flights were the uh, the Columbia, the Discovery, the Atlantis, the Challenger, and then later the Endeavor. Now the Columbia, Discovery, Atlantis, and Challenger were the original four shuttles. Yep, the Columbia was rolled out in seventy nine, Challenger in eighty two, Discovery in eighty three. Atlantis in 85 and Endeavor in 91. And the very first space shuttle flight, as in going into low Earth orbit, was in 1981, and it was the Columbia. Yes. Uh, now, again, these were all designed to go into low Earth orbit. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought it might be interesting to kind of take sort of a an audio tour of the shuttle. In other words, we're just going to kind of talk about the different parts of the space shuttle. And, and this is um, – I kind of took it from pre-launch. Okay. So this is the the whole kit and caboodle, one might say. It's not just the orbiter. Now that's what most of us think about when we think about the space shuttle. You think of the orbiter. Yeah. Which is the the one that looks kind of like a funky airplane. Right. But the uh, the if you're talking about the whole space shuttle, you're talking about three major sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, your solid rocket fuel boosters, which do the lion's share of the work when you're talking about launch. They do. They provide seventy one percent of the thrust that's needed to lift off the launch pad. So you're thinking like, well, if the solid rocket uh, fuel boosters are doing 71% of the work, where's the other 29% coming from? That's actually coming from the orbiter's engines, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we'll get into that. So the solid rocket fuel boosters are uh, using a – they use a a solid rocket motor. It has a propellant that's uh, – it's uh, also got an igniter and a nozzle. So the nozzle, of course, is where it directs the gases out so that it creates thrust. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, the fuel it uses, is it consists of, um, well, the fuel part is the atomized aluminum. Uh, it has uh, oxidizers in the form of ammonium percolate. It's got a catalyst in the form of iron oxide powder. It's got a binder agent, uh, which I don't even think I could even pronounce. And then there's a curing agent, which is an epoxy resin. And this material altogether makes a solid uh, rocket fuel, and this stuff weighs a lot. And <laughs> you know, the, the, it's one of the one of the big challenges with spaceflight is the fact that your fuel weighs so much. Um, like in order to to launch something of a particular mass into space, you need a lot of fuel to get there. Well, the more fuel you add, the more weight you add. So you you have this problem where you've got to get the right ratio of fuel to uh, counteract not just the weight of the vehicle, but the weight of the fuel as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. According to NASA, the uh, the space shuttle 
if you wanted to uh, put it on a scale, you'd need a pretty big scale. It, it weighs more than 2.04 million kilograms or four and a half million pounds at launch. Yeah. And uh, it uses in, in eight and a half minutes after launch, it uses more than 1.59 million kilograms or 3.5 million pounds of propellant. Yeah. It's slightly less uh, fuel efficient than a Hummer. <laughs> yes, but the Hummer doesn't use solid fuel. No, no, no. But uh, I, I wanted to mention something else. That this the solid rocket fuel booster. It's actually jointed. It's not. It's not one solid piece. And if you were to ever actually take a look at one of these and just see the scale of it, how huge it is, you would understand. There's no, no building it out of one piece would not be. <laughs> it would not be a uh, um, practical. Well, they use. O-rings, rubber O-ring seals to seal the two sections or the multiple sections together. Right. right. Basically, they're they're sort of like gaskets. Yes. So these are meant to create a, a, an airtight seal uh, around these sol- solid rocket boosters. Well, it was it was one of these O-rings that caused the problem that led to the Challenger disaster. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the disasters that have happened in the space shuttle program. Well, the Challenger disaster was a very famous one. And what happened was that when uh, th- the day of that launch, it was unusually cold. The mm-hmm. cold weather had uh, made the, the rubber O-rings shrink a little bit. So they were no longer properly sealing the joints but in the solid rocket booster. Mm-hmm. Upon launch, some of the hot gases, I mean, we're talking incredibly hot gases from the, that were being emitted by the solid rocket booster were escaping through the joints because the O-rings were no longer sealing them properly. Some of these cut through like a blowtorch. They cut through the exterior of the external fuel tank, which is the next section we'll be talking about in a second. Now, the external fuel tank has two different kinds of fuel in it, as liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. Yes. Well, the hot gases from the solid rocket booster ended up igniting the liquid hydrogen inside the external fuel tank, which then promptly exploded. That was what caused the explosion on the Challenger flight. So uh, it was after that... it, it the the spatial program actually stopped for a few years after the Challenger disaster while NASA was uh, investigating the disaster and trying to determine what was the cause and how would uh, the organization prevent such a thing from happening in the future. So ultimately, you could say that the, the rubber O-rings in the, the uh, solid rocket fuel booster uh, was they were to blame for at least that part of the Challenger disaster, the the whole initial uh, um, emergency that then led to the tragedy. Yeah, and it it the, those engines do get hot. They um, uh, according again according to NASA, the temperatures inside the engines themselves uh, reach more than six thousand degrees Fahrenheit, around three three thousand three hundred fifteen point six degrees Celsius. Yeah, um, so that's you know, any any leak it can be very catastrophic in a very, very short span of time, as we have seen. Right. So that's our first section that we wanted to talk about. Next, we have the external fuel tank. Now, this is the, the, the big kind of uh, rocket-looking thing that sticks to the shuttle even after the, they jettison the uh, rocket boosters. By the way, in order to jettison these things, they have these explosive charges between uh, the sections that um, that when they explode, they they break the 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 links between one element and the next. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, that means that you have to also be very careful with that because, I mean, anytime you're using explosives near a whole lot of fuel, clearly you've got to take a lot of precautions. Well, the external fuel tank stores liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, as I said, and that's what uh, provides fuel to the orbiter's three main engines. Uh, and it's, uh, there's, there's a six to one ratio for liquid hydrogen to liquid oxygen. So there's mm-hmm. far more liquid hydrogen on than the, uh, than oxygen. Uh, the external fuel tank is 158 feet long, which is about 48 meters. And it's got a diameter of 27.6 feet or about 8.4 meters. And when it's empty, it weighs a, a, a feather light 78,000 pounds or 35,455 kilograms. Yeah. Um, and it holds uh, 1.6 million pounds of propellant, which, again, 719,000 kilograms. So it's got a total volume of around 526,000 gallons or mm-hmm. 2 million liters. So, yeah, it holds it holds a lot of fuel. Yes, it does. Um, and it's uh, it's made out of aluminum and aluminum composite materials. 
Uh, it's got the two tanks. Uh, the forward tank is the one for the oxygen. The aft tank is for hydrogen. And then there's an uh, inner tank region that separates the two from each other. So this this uh, the propellant, it, flo- it flows through a um, 17-inch diameter feed line, uh, 43 centimeters. I-, I always have to try to do that because I keep forgetting that we have so many people from around the world who listen to our podcast, and we're used to using these outmoded methods of uh, measurement and everyone else is much more forward thinking than we are uh, then we uh, the so the the fuel flows through this this diameter uh, or the diameter this feed line and uh, goes to the shuttle's main engines right and then the uh, oxygen by the way if you if you want to know how fast the the uh, fuel flows through this line the oxygen flows through at a rate of around 17,600 gallons per minute uh, which is uh, 66,600 liters per minute. Strangely enough, we still use minutes in both systems <laughs> of measurement. Uh, then hydrogen, though, flows at 47,400 gallons per minute or 179,000 liters per minute. So quite fast indeed. Well, yeah, well, I mean, seriously, you could, uh, if you were using water instead of fuel, the uh, shuttle's engines could drain a regular-sized swimming pool uh, in about 20 se- 25 seconds. Yeah, which according uh, to NASA. And if you were using water instead of fuel, that would be the most awesome water park ever. Uh, although you could probably only go once. So the, the 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 fuel they burn the fuel in a pre chamber mm-hmm. to create uh, the high pressure, and uh, then the the heat and the pressure from the gases uh, drive turbo pumps, and then uh, the fuel is burned in the main combustion chamber. They direct the gases out of the nozzle at around 6,000 miles per hour, 10,000 kilometers per hour. And uh, that means that each of the three engines can generate around oh, 375,000 to 470,000 pounds of thrust. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's what's providing that other 29% of thrust when uh, the shuttle is going to launch. Um, now the, the external tank mm-hmm. is covered with uh, a spray-on foam insulation, which leads us to a discussion, a brief discussion about the second space shuttle disaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the Columbia disaster. Now, you may remember when the Columbia was coming in in 2003, when it was coming uh, for the descent toward Earth, uh, it broke apart uh, on reentry. Well... The investigation led to the discovery that that the likely cause of that was that a piece of this foam insulation broke off of the external tank during launch and struck the orbiter. And that's what weakened the orbiter and caused it to break apart upon reentry. One of the most controversial things about the uh, the orbiter itself has been the heat resistant tiles. Yeah. I mean, even from the very beginning, I remember those discussions when I was a kid. And, um, you know, those, they're, they're made of a, a type of foam, uh, basically, and, and they're, they're delicate. I mean, even on the very first missions, they would notice that some of them would fall out. Um, and they've done a lot of, you know, made, made a lot of changes to the tiles over the years, but, right. um, they are still, all things considered, even though they are very heat resistant, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of degrees, and, um, because they, they do, on reentry, hit about three thousand degrees Fahrenheit yeah. as it, it comes back into the atmosphere, it's or about toasty. one thousand six hundred forty-eight degrees Celsius. So, I mean, even though they are remar- amazingly heat resistant, they are remarkably fragile for all of that. So, right. you have to be very careful um, with that. Now, they on, on flights subsequent to uh, Columbia's um, accident, they have been very careful to check the outside of the the spacecraft before reentry. Yeah, and there have been space shuttle launch delays when they've discovered even the smallest of of flaws, which you know, as far as we know, could have potentially have saved the lives of other astronauts. Yes, I mean, it's, of course, it's impossible to know, you know, which ones would have successfully landed and which ones wouldn't. But it's much better to know that they've they've gone through these sort of procedures in order to maintain uh, astronaut safety. Uh, I mean, these these accidents were tragic in multiple mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, first of all, and in my opinion, most importantly, it meant the loss of lives. Yes. And, and that is truly a tragic thing. Uh, it also, in a, a more superficial way, really, when you look at the big picture, 
meant a setback in the space program, um, which, you know, that's a problem as well. I and mean, we've had a lot of advances in technology due to the space program. So I, I admire the fact that NASA has taken these incredible precautions, which when you're excited about a launch and you've planned a trip down to Florida to watch a launch, uh, can be frustrating. You know, you go down there and then the launch is delayed because of this, but it's that's much better than the alternative, obviously. Mm-hmm. So now we're moving on to the orbiter. We talked about the solid fuel rocket boosters and the uh, external tank. The orbiter is next. So the orbiter is, of course, what we think of when we th- when we talk about the space shuttle. That's yes. the the very iconic shuttle. Um, it has, uh, like I said, three main uh, engines. It's got an orbital maneuvering system. It is uh, each of the orbiter engines, by the way, is 14 feet long or 4.3 meters. And uh, seven and a half feet in diameter, or 2.3 meters, and each engine weighs 6,700 pounds, or around 3,040 kilograms. And uh, they are—it's hard to get a a vision on how big that is just when I start saying numbers. Uh, if you ever visit one of the um, the centers that has a space shuttle or has one of the engines there, to see it in person is pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's it's a really you start to grasp how big the entire vehicle is just by looking at one engine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the orbiter consists of a uh, uh, there's a, a a forward fuselage which has the crew compartment inside of it, um, and it also has the 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 reaction control system module. Uh, it's got a movable airlock which can be used to uh, put inside the crew compartment or inside the cargo bay. Uh, then you've got the mid fuselage. That's where the cargo bay is. That's you know the the when we think of the doors opening out to space. That's the mid fuselage area. Uh, it's where the the payload for the space shuttle will be. And uh, payloads could be anything from a satellite that needs to be launched into orbit to pieces of uh, equipment or material for the uh, International Space Station, including uh, uh, supplies for the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you've got – it also has the uh, remote manipulator arm, the robotic arm that we've seen that uh, helps position satellites in the right uh, orientation and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the aft fuselage. So that's the back end of the the orbiter. That's ha- that's where the uh, engines are, the main engines. Uh, so the orbital maneuvering system is there. Um, and then uh, that's – so. You can think of the the orbiter in those three big sections. The one that the astronauts stay in the most is, of course, the uh, the the forward fuselage. That's where the crew quarters are and the uh, control systems are for for the orbiter itself. Well, yeah, I mean the the crew module is uh, is in three sections. Yes, uh, where you, where the astronauts will work, live, and and stow their their gear, um, and it's got. Um, I was looking something up. Did you get into the, the where the flight deck and mid deck are? No, no. Okay, yeah, the flight deck uh, and the mid deck equipment bay and an airlock are the three parts of the crew module. Um, you know, basically, the flight deck is the you know what you might see in an airplane. If you think about it in those terms, you see where the pilot and the co-pilot are. Right, and if a, if the shuttle were were sitting on the ground, mm-hmm. you know, horizontal, flat on the ground, the like flight when it deck, lands, for example, right, the flight deck would be the uppermost section of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Of the crew compartment, yeah, that's where you'll find the flight controls. Um, it has all the the hand controllers, the rudder pedals. Um, there are four people. There's room for four people on the flight deck, um, and you know it's got all the everything they need to basically fly. Or you know, I guess what do you call it in space? I guess you call it flying it. Yeah, navigating. Um, maybe. Navigating in space. Um, and if you're looking. On the, if you were in the cockpit, you would see the, the displays and the controls for operating the orbiter itself. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the right, you would see, uh, the controls for handling payloads. Um, and it, according to NASA, again, more than 2,020 separate displays and controls. Yeah. That's what you will find on the flight deck. And if, in case you're worried about right versus left, starboard, on the starboard side, because it all depends on which way you're facing. If you're facing the fr- toward the front of the shuttle, it's on the right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So starboard side. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that NASA didn't actually use port and starboard in here, but ahoy. <laughs> uh, and mid deck is where you'll find uh, uh, four crew sleep stations. Yep. Um And uh, 
you also find um, other types of gear, the waste management system. Yep, toilet. The head. Yeah. Uh, Would you call it the head? The galley. Um, uh, personal there... hygiene station mm-hmm. and uh, where naps? you would work and, and eat yep. there. Um, they do fit seven people. Up to seven people in a shuttle. Um, the upcoming, actually, as we're recording this, the uh, the last, the very last in a thirty year program space shuttle mission is about to uh, launch on July eighth, which is kind of why we are. Um, we actually recorded several episodes before this, but we wanted to get this in before that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we that shuffled last, things around. Yes, we did. And the last crew is actually going to be four people. Yes, uh, from what I understand. So they can hold up to seven, but uh, you know. The, this last mission will have four. And the mid-deck also includes uh, exercise equipment because one of the things we learned in these these um, missions is that if you are in space for uh, any significant amount of time, now granted, space shuttle missions last between about seven and 14 days, yes. depending on the mission, uh, but uh, you can uh, you can experience muscle loss and bone, lo- bone density loss. So the exercise equipment is there to help counteract that. Uh, it's because, you know, you're in a weightless environment, so you're no longer needing to support your own weight uh, whenever you move around. Everything's much easier. But that means that once you get back down on the ground where we do have gravity, um, it becomes a little bit, you know, you, you may suffer some uh, some problems because of muscle loss or bone density loss. So uh, then you know, in the lower deck, that's pretty much where equipment that's where it quote unquote lives. Uh, so life support equipment, electrical systems, that kind of thing. And there are five onboard computers that handle the data processing and, uh, the flight systems aboard the shuttle. Uh, so those five systems are, are distributed throughout this, this area as well. And, uh, you've got the two orbital maneuvering systems engines that are located, uh, in the aft of the, the orbiter. Uh, these, Burn um, uh, monomethyl hydrazine fuel and nitrogen te- tetroxide oxidizer. I thought I could get through that. And I definitely <laughs> bungled it. At any rate, uh, it, this is a different kind of fuel mixture than the external fuel tank, obviously, um, and also from the solid fuel rocket boosters. Uh, and the, the reason why they're using this sub, these two substances together is that when you combine them, they ignite even if there is no oxygen present. So clearly, if you're going to go into an environment where there is a distinct lack of oxygen, that is important. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, they, and they use uh, uh, nitrogen to help pump that fuel uh, through and and also helium. The helium pressurized helium is actually used to move the fuel through the system. Nitrogen is used to help clear it out once you are done maneuver doing your maneuvers because you don't want any fuel sitting in those fuel lines because um, that could be a problem the next time you need to use them. So uh, then there's a, a, a whole section about the what the uh, the orbital maneuvering system can do. Uh, it actually can produce up to six thousand pounds of thrust. And uh, can accelerate the shuttle by two feet per second per second. Remember, acceleration is a change in velocity. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I did find this one interesting fact. Um, the uh, <laughs> the uh, shuttle can go from zero to seventeen thousand four hundred miles per hour in eight and a half minutes. Just slightly faster than a Hummer. And uh, nine times the speed of a rifle bullet. Yeah. So don't. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Why don't we? Uh, well, I have an interesting uh, uh, kind of breakdown of what a a launch sequence is like for uh, leading up to well, half a minute before the shuttle actually launches. Yeah. Okay. So half a minute before the shuttle launches, actually t minus thirty one seconds, meaning that in thirty one seconds you're going to have launch, uh, assuming that everything is is copacetic. Uh, yes. Um, that they're go. Yeah, that they are go for launch. So at, at 31 seconds to launch, the onboard computers take over the launch sequence. So uh, the astronauts really are sitting back and waiting to make sure that they are going to launch. Uh, 6.6 seconds from launch, the shuttle's main engines ignite one at a time, and they ignite 0.12 seconds apart from each other. 
I always love that part, watching the launch. Yeah. And they, they build up to about, oh, a little bit over 90% of their maximum thrust at that point. Now, three seconds from launch, the shuttle main engines are in liftoff position. So they have been, they're all mounted on gimbals, right? So they can actually yeah. be directed. They're not, they're not stuck in a single direction. So they've been positioned and they are at the correct amount of thrust for launch. I love that part too. T-minus zero seconds, this is the actual launch part, that's when the solid rocket boosters are ignited. And, of course, they produce the 71% of the thrust needed to get the uh, the orbiter, or actually the entire shuttle, off the launch pad. So that's the point where you've got enough thrust to counteract the weight of this vehicle and launch it into the air. Yeah, It looks like there's a ton of smoke, but actually what comes out of the, the engines is mostly water vapor. Yep. Uh, so 20 seconds after the launch, you've got the, the first maneuver where the shuttle will roll right about a 180-degree roll and an adjustment of 78 degrees in pitch. Uh, a minute after launch, the shuttle engines are at their maximum throttle. Uh, then two minutes after launch, your solid rocket boosters will separate from the orbiter and fuel tank at about, uh, they're about 28 miles up or 45 kilometers up in the uh, atmosphere at that point. Now, the main engines on the the uh, orbiter continue to fire at that time. Now, once the solid rocket boosters separate from the, the rest of the shuttle, uh, they will deploy parachutes and will land in the ocean about around 140 miles off the coast of Florida. That's about uh, 225 kilometers. And then uh, those will be recovered by ships and actually be reused after being processed, obviously. You can't just slap them back on the launch pad, clearly. Seven and, uh, 7.7 minutes after launch, the main engines are throttled down to keep acceleration below 3 Gs, because uh, otherwise you may harm the integrity of the space shuttle itself. Eight and a half minutes after launch, you shut the main engines down. Nine minutes after launch, the external tank separates from the orbiter, and the external tank actually will burn up upon reentry. The ten and a half minutes after launch, the uh, the orbital maneuvering system engines fire to get the shuttle, the orbiter, into a low orbit. And forty five minutes after launch, the uh, orbital maneuvering system engines will fire again to place in a slightly higher circular orbiter with orbit, which is about two hundred fifty miles above the surface of the Earth, or or four hundred kilometers. Yep. So and there you go. That's that's the whole process of just getting the uh, orbiter into that that orbit around the Earth. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, um, once they're up there, they will deploy satellites. They will do science experiments. Sometimes they'll go for an uh, extravehicular activity. Yeah, it's a spacewalk. Yes, I love the NASA terms. Um, EVA is what then? And yes, and then they'll try to uh, you know get everything ready, pack up. Uh, you know, and it, it's time to head home. Yep. I know you wanted to, to talk about that. They have to, uh, they have to, there are a lot of people in the mission control center that help the shuttle astronauts as they're going through their mission. Um, they will help them position the shuttle in the correct direction to yeah, come the, home. The right attitude. Yeah, exactly. And they also will main, they also monitor all the different systems aboard the shuttle because there are tons of different systems on there, right? I mean, when I say yeah. tons, of course, I mean there are lots of them. Yes. So things like everything from what we would call life support systems, so stuff that not just distributes oxygen through the system, but oxygen at the right mixture. You know, it's not going to be pure oxygen. It has right. to be atmosphere that's comparable to the Earth's atmosphere. Also, there have to be scrubbers that will scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so it doesn't get too stuffy or yeah. uh, eventually it would get to a point where you could not breathe. Um, so the carbon dioxide scrubbers use a chemical reaction where it takes carbon dioxide from the system, combines it with another uh, another compound, and then you end up getting a kind of inert material and sometimes water mm-hmm. as a result. And that way you don't have carbon dioxide build up in the cabin. And also you have to worry about maintaining heat. Uh, the heat inside the space shuttle would continue to get uh, warmer and warmer. The electrical systems actually provide more than enough heat to keep the shuttle warm, despite the fact that you would think, oh, well, you know what? Space is probably pretty cold. Well, that's true, but the electrical systems on the shuttle generate enough heat where they actually have to figure out ways to manage that heat so it doesn't overheat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they've got a lot of different systems for that, and uh, uh, both passive and active systems for managing heat. There are lots and lots of other ones that we could talk about, but really, if we want to talk about 
the reentry system or the reentry uh, process. Uh, that gets uh, that's also a very delicate procedure. Uh, obviously, launching is going to be a pretty delicate thing as well. You're talking about lots and lots of 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 very um, reactive agents in the launch process. Well, mm-hmm. coming back down is also pretty tricky. Uh, so here's the process that goes through a, a reentry. They close the cargo bay doors. That's yes. clearly very important. Yes. Uh, and most of the time when the or- the orbiter is flying around the – or in orbit around the Earth, uh, in relation to us, it would look like they are upside down. Mm-hmm. Like the, the top of the space shuttle would be facing the, the surface of the planet. Right. So uh, they will actually use their thrusters to turn the orbiter. And they, they don't turn it so it faces directly like it's going to uh, come down nose first. It actually – they face it uh, tail first uh, in order to start firing the the uh, the OMS, the orbital maneuvering system engines, mm-hmm. to slow the the orbiter down. Right. So they're actually, you know, they're using it to to fire in the opposite direction of their orbit to slow down the the orbiter, and it takes about twenty five minutes from the first time they start firing those uh, engines. To the point where they reach the upper atmosphere, and at that during that that twenty five minutes, they use their thrusters in order to turn the orbiter over again, so that the bottom of the orbiter will face the atmosphere, and uh, they're moving again where it's nose first as opposed to tail first at that point, and then they will burn all the leftover fuel from their forward thruster system Mm -hmm. as a safety precaution because, of course, it's going to heat up quite a bit. So they don't want any fuel in that area of the orbiter uh, before they start to really uh, gain lots of heat. Now, this is where we talked about the idea of friction generating the heat. That's not exactly true. Right. What's happening is pressure. The, mm-hmm. you're, you, when the orbiter comes in at the uh, into the atmosphere, it's compressing the air below it. Right. And that compression is what's generating that heat. So you may have heard that the friction is what causes the heat. Everyone's heard it. I mean, yeah. the Smithsonian reports it as friction. It's not friction. It's actually compression that's generating the heat. Now, there is friction playing a role. It is not that there is no friction because if there were no friction, then the shuttle would just slide through the atmosphere like it was nothing. Uh, it's uh, not, you know, not a, a non-factor. It's just that the major contributor to heat is the compression of the atmosphere as the shuttle re-enters the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So then, um, it's it starts to uh, come into the atmosphere. It's uh, generating tons of heat through this compression. Again, not literally tons. I always get mail whenever I use the word tons. Yeah, to, to just say a lot. Um, and it, it tries to distribute uh, – it doesn't try. The, there's heat distribution methods that are mostly used through things like the uh, reinforced carbon carbon, which is RCC, which is on the wing surfaces, the underside of the shuttle. Um, there's some uh, high-temperature insulation tiles on the upper forward fuselage and around the windows, things like that. That's what's used to absorb that heat. Um, once it encounters uh, – once it's re-entered the Earth's atmosphere mm-hmm. – Now's the time where we talk about the the whole flying element here. Uh-huh. So the shuttle has um, a swept back delta wings. That's the the name of the design for right. the shuttle's wings. Uh-huh. And uh, it can gener- generate a lot of lift with a small surface area of wing space because of that design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's essentially flying under computer control at this point. Yeah, the astronauts are not guiding the shuttle, the, the orbiter, as it's coming in uh, at, at this moment. And it starts to have to make these long S-shaped uh, flight patterns. And the reason for that is to continually decelerate the, the orbiter. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to slow it down. You can't just come in for a landing straight away uh, or else you'd, you know, you'd need a much further, you'd have to go a much further distance in order to do it. So the S shape kind of helps the shuttle slow down. So it's mm-hmm. banking back and forth. And, um, around, oh, well, about 140 miles away from the landing site, 
Uh, you've got the radio beacon from the runway, which is uh, called the Tactical Air Navigation System. That gets picked up by the shuttle. And about 25 miles out from the the landing site, that's when the computers hand over control to the shuttle's commander. So at that point, the shuttle does come under human control. And the commander actually flies the shuttle down and uh, has to make a, a long, curved uh, entry toward the landing strip and sets down uh, the shuttle. Now, this whole time when the shuttle's coming down, it's coming down in a much steeper approach than what you would experience on your typical commercial air flight. Right. So, uh, yeah, this would really freak me out if I were on a, on a normal flight and, and arrived at, a, at this kind of steep grade. But at that point, uh, the, uh, the orbiter, uh, once it's around oh, 2,000 feet above the ground, that's when the commander will lift the nose to slow the rate of descent. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pilot will deploy the landing gear. And that's when the orbiter touches down. The uh, they throw on the brakes. Uh, the vertical tail opens up. Parachutes deployed, and that all helps to slow and eventually stop the orbiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, you still have to wait a while. Mm-hmm. You can't have people just run up to the orbiter at that point. For one thing, it's still quite warm. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, I wanted to clarify because uh, I, I had always been told. Uh, again, this is sort of a misnomer about the, the foam tiles. They're not really made of foam. Uh, I, I wanted to do a little bit of clarification that yeah. they're actually made of a silica fiber, uh, basically sand mixed with some ceramic. Um, and, you know, there is some air in there, which is why I think uh, people describe it as being foam. There, there are pockets of air based on the way they're made. Yep. Uh, but they're not. it's not actually foam like you would see. Uh, you know, a styrofoam or some kind of plastic foam. So, uh, just to clear that up before anybody writes in, I do know the difference in that. Right. But, right. um, they're actually a couple different kinds, but they, they do store heat. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, they, I mean, you can, anytime you've put something down on a ceramic tile, like, uh, you know, the a hot plate, when you have, um, one of those tiled tables and you lift it up, you know that the, the, uh, tiles are still holding heat in. And that's what's going on with the shuttle. You can't just, uh, you know, wheel it up to the gate. Besides, usually when I get in, there's not a gate ready and you have to sit there. Yeah, and there's also some, you know, the whole, the fuels that, that the shell burns also can generate some pretty nasty uh, gases that need to redistribute. Chris is giving me a funny look because he's, <laughs> he's thinking I'm going to make a, a, a fart joke. I am not. Um, no, there are noxious gases that are generated by the, the burning of this fuel. Stop laughing, you little two-year-old. And then the, uh, uh, but you have to give it time for those to, to dissipate. Yes. And also for the shuttle to cool down, the orbiter to cool down. Um, once that happens, it takes probably about, oh, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. They'll start powering down the systems and then that's when the crew will exit the shuttle to great acclaim. Yes. And so that's kind of a, a beginning to end look at the a, a basic overview of a space shuttle mission. Now there are there are so many more elements we could go into. I mean this is this episode's already gone forty five minutes and we barely touched on uh on on even half of what we could have talked about. In fact we probably could have done an entire episode just about a launch. Yes. But um, we wanted to give you more of a uh, overview of the space shuttle itself. Uh, if you want to learn more, like I said, the How Stuff Works article is fantastic. But also NASA has yeah. tons. Oh, I'm not going to use it anymore. I'm not going to use tons again. Lots of resources. Yes. There's a yes. lot of information about the space shuttle on their site. Uh, yeah, there 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 are some interesting facts, and I mean, just as in factoids and little things that are just interesting to people who are curious. Also, some extremely technical documents too. So it's it, it, no matter how interested you are, uh, assuming you're interested somewhat, there will be something. Uh, just a couple notes: um, the launch date is planned for July eighth, two thousand eleven. Um, for Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-135, which is the last planned Space Shuttle mission, they are supposed to be launching at 11.26 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, as of the time we're recording this, uh, from Kennedy Space Center at Pad 39A. They're scheduled to land on July 20th at 7.06 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time um, at Kennedy Space Center. Um, and their primary payload is uh, the Raffaello Multipurpose Logistics Module, whatever that is. Um, so 
Godspeed to the shuttle yep. astronauts on this final mission. I know and we I'll are going to be very sad to see the program end. But yep, I'll be, be uh, something else. I'll be watching the launch live. I'm sure. Um, on, Always on, do on the computer. I I actually had a chance to maybe get a standby position for the tweet up, but event, uh, sadly I am not able to take advantage of it because I used up all my vacation recently. Well, hopefully Megan and some of the others who are going to the tweet up will keep us up to date on what's going on. Certainly, I sh- I sure hope so. Hope, well, hope that, enjoy that. That's going to wrap up this discussion of the space shuttle, and uh, we will be tackling other space related topics in the near future. Uh, actually, for Chris and I, we'll be tackling it in about thirty seconds, but you'll be hearing it later on. Anyway, we're going to talk about more elements about the space program. If you have anything specific you would like us to talk about, whether it's the space program or anything else, let us know. You can let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, or you can send us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 